Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Courtney, a white mom from L.A. Episode 3, Hagerman and the White Kids. We've got a great interview with uh, sociologist and author Maggie Hagerman about her book, White Kids, Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America. Andrew, I am super excited about this. And if you are listening before November 13th, 2018, join us for a conversation about this book with the Integrated Schools Book Club. You can find a link to our online video conference book clubs at our website, integratedschools.org. And get the book. It's get so good. Book. It's so good. Um, I really, I love this idea of uh, the racial context we create for our kids as they grow up. I think her book really highlights how important the spaces we put our kids are in are to the ways that they come to understand race. Yeah. And how we can say one thing to our kids and our choices say and say much louder something quite, quite different oftentimes. Mm, totally. We hope you enjoy this one. Let us know what you think at Integrated Schools on Twitter, Integrated Schools on Facebook, or send us an email. Hello at IntegratedSchools.org. Okay. On with the show. We're thrilled to be here today with Dr. Margaret Hagerman, who's an assistant professor of sociology at Mississippi State University and the author of an awesome new book called White Kids, Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America. Maggie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We just want to start, if you could just give us really a sort of a brief overview of what your research is and how you went about it and a little bit about why you care about this. Sure. So I'm a sociologist. Um, I focus on the areas of racial socialization and really um, looking at youth perspectives on inequality. And, um, you know, I came to this specific project because when I was in graduate school, I was doing all kinds of research on how it is that families of color and particularly African-American families are communicating ideas about race and racism to their children, um, specifically with the intention of helping prepare their children to live in a racist society and to navigate potential future, you know, acts of discrimination and racism and so forth. And so as I was reading that research, I became really sort of curious about what goes on in white families. And in particular, what are the messages that white parents are communicating to their children about racism, privilege, inequality in America? I think in a broader, from a broader perspective, you know, I grew up in a white suburban community that was very close to a city that was much, much less white. Um, I don't remember the actual demographics, but I do remember as a child being very curious about the differences between crossing over this literally this lake that separated these two communities and then noticing that the racial you know, makeup of the community was very different. So I do think that some of my own experiences in childhood and questions that I had growing up sort of inform, you know, my interest in how it is that kids today are thinking about all of this. So, you know, there's a lot more to the story, but I think that kind of gives you a sense. Can you tell us a little bit about just to kind of give our listeners a lay of the land, how you went about your research for this book? Sure. So this is an ethnography. Just, you know, I think it's important to note that when social scientists give 
white people racial attitude surveys try to figure out what they think about race oftentimes scholars find that white people will either skip the questions about race or they'll click the i don't know option um sort of called survey non-response and so um because i knew about that reality i thought that it would be important to try to use a more qualitative methodological approach to studying what goes on in white communities white spaces white families and so i embedded myself into this community um This is what ethnographers typically do. And I spent about two years in this community. I moved here. I lived here. And I conducted both interviews with 36 children um, that were all in middle school when I did the initial study. And then also with their parents. And then I conducted observations of these families in their everyday life. So this included things like family parties and, you know, activities after school, but also um, I, you know, provided childcare for some of these kids. And so I drove them to soccer practice and went to their various events at the school and so forth. So I really tried to put myself in spaces that these white families were living and then try to understand from their perspective, you know, why they were making the decisions they were making and then why the kids were thinking the way that they were um, about racism and inequality. I think that one of the main takeaways of your work is essentially that you can talk all you want about race and racism, but what you're really communicating your kids is through the kinds of worlds that you create and, you know, kind of curate for them. Can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. So I talk about that as sort of actions speak louder than words. And, you know, I've noticed that in the aftermath of racist hate crimes, for example, I often see some blog posts and op-eds and other types of writing about the importance of talking to white kids about racism. Um, You know, we need to talk to our white kids, talk to your white kids, et cetera. And while I think that that idea is really important, what I found in my study is that actually what parents say to their kids, I think often matters less, at least for the families in my study, than what they were doing and how they were setting up their child's social environment. And so, you know, choices that parents were making about where to live, where to send their kids to school, where to travel, even things like which friendships they would encourage their children to have or even to discourage their children to have, you know, the list goes on and on. But but all of these things, I argue, construct a racial context of childhood. And that means that children are then living in this context or this social environment, and they're interpreting what's going on around them. They're interacting with other people, and they're making observations of the world as they go you know, through their everyday life. And it's those things that are really driving their future understanding or current understanding of race and race relations in the country rather than sort of what their parents might hope by having a conversation with them they take away. Right. So, you know, I found some some striking patterns in my data. And so I think that's what's interesting about my book is that I have the parents' voices and sort of the parents' thought, you know, their thoughts about why they made the decisions they did to set up their kids' lives, the, you know, in different ways. But then I also have the children's perspectives. And so I sort of tie that together and document how and describe how because of the choices these parents are making, these children then come to different conclusions about race and racism. And so, you know, my ultimate goal is to really understand why kids are coming up with the ideas that they are and, you know, and actually looking at, you know, what kids actually think about these topics. But what I found is that, yeah, the choices that parents are making and how they choose to set up the everyday lives of their children 
that that's how these ideas about race are being developed by children themselves. You know, kids are not simply repeating the ideas that their parents tell them. Um, certainly parents are shaping what their kids think in this, in my research, but they're not determining it. And actually I think what, what plays a much more powerful role is actually that social environment that the kid's living in. We talk a lot about this idea of, you know, the difference between being non-racist or not racist and being anti-racist. And, and the question comes up repeatedly, can you raise an anti-racist white kid, you know, when you're attending only white segregated schools? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. Um, I think that if someone is sending their child to a, a school that's predominantly or in some cases exclusively white, then they ought to you know, be aware that that's likely communicating ideas about race to their children. And I think that you know, part of the work, the work that parents can participate in in terms of raising anti-racist children, it, I certainly think it extends beyond simply the choices that people make about schools. I, I, guess what my, I guess my answer is that I think that the choices parents make about schools play a major role, but I think that there's also a lot of other factors that matter too. Yeah. I guess the the fact that these parents are making choices about this strikes me as a, an acknowledgement of privilege. But lots of people don't get to make a choice about the type of environment that they raise their kids in. You talk a lot of, in the book about the conundrum of privilege. Can you maybe just you know elaborate on that a little bit and some examples of that? Sure. So I should point out that the families in my study were all upper middle class or affluent. And the reason that I decided to study you know, families that had both racial privilege and economic privilege is because I wanted to look at families when faced with all the decisions, right? Like they don't have the limits that many other families have in terms of, you know, the finances. Um, when, when faced with sort of all the choices, what are the choices that parents make and how does race kind of play out or how does race inform um, some of those decisions? And so that I think is, is an important point to acknowledge about the book as a whole. And so when you're faced with all these different choices, you know, and you live in a society in which we have this sort of idea that being a good parent means securing as many advantages for your own child as you can, you know, that at times can conflict with maybe some of these more abstract values of fairness or equal opportunity or even racial justice. And so, you know, the conundrum of privilege, as you mentioned, and as I talk about, um, is really trying to get at this conundrum that quite honestly, many of the parents you know, shared their anxieties and concerns about with me. On the one hand, they want to be a good parent and give their kids all of the things. But on the other hand, they recognize that by doing so, they're actually contradicting the very values that they're trying to communicate to their, ch to their child about things like equality. I'd love to hear some examples. So I think one of the most powerful examples was a family that had opted into the public schools, and I say opt because again, they have options. And they, you know, they talked a lot about the importance of their child going to a school that had, you know, had representation from different racial groups, class groups, like disability, abilities, you know, and they really valued this public school, but then something really racist happened at the school. And, you know, there was a lot of racial turmoil and fighting. And so as a result, the parents decided to move their child to a different school. And that different school was a private school 
that was kind of labeled itself as like a social justice school, but it was very white. And so, you know, I talked to this one father about, you know, that conundrum of like, I want to support the public schools, but my daughter is really upset by the racism at this school. So I'm going to move her mid-semester to this private school that's very expensive and I have the resources to do that. So I'm going to do that. And, you know, in the book, I, I sort of think about and talk about like what message is that sending that little girl, you know, like I, I totally understand on the one hand from a parenting perspective, but it's also on the other hand that that little girl is learning that when things get too bad, you can give up or that as a white person, you can walk away from racism when it's too much for you to handle. And certainly we know that's not the experience of um, people of color in, in this country. So that's one example. There are other examples about, you know, the choices people are making about, you know, concerned about the academics at this school. Um, that was kind of an interesting thing for me to do is to ask parents why they opted out of a public school and then to actually look at the data on that school. So some of the parents told me that they couldn't possibly send their child to this school because the academics were not strong enough. And instead they opted for this other school. But then when I compared all these metrics like ACT score, you know, all the graduation rates and college admissions and all that, in some cases, the public school is actually better. So, you know, I think that there's a lot going on and it's very complex and nuanced. Um, but those are some, those are some examples. And I think what's partly interesting, I mean, there's a lot that's interesting, but one of the pieces in this that I kind of want you to elaborate on too is with this conundrum of privilege and this paradox, parents want to be a good parent by getting the best for their kids. And I think hidden in the word good and best are all kinds of assumptions and biases. And so I was wondering if you wanted to kind of talk a bit about how good and best have played out in your research. Absolutely. So I think a lot about this idea of being a good parent and raising a good kid and living in a good neighborhood and going to a good school. Um, I think you can substitute best in there, you know, also. <laughs> right. And certainly, yeah, I mean, we know from the amazing research um, by one of my colleagues, Heather Beth Johnson, that finds that whiter schools are thought of as better schools. And this is across the board. Members of different racial groups even articulate this point in some research, at least. Um, and I think that that's because there is, in some cases, you know, there are more resources if you're looking at things like, you know, just talking to someone who was doing a fundraiser so they could have a new playground at their school because the school didn't have enough money to have a playground, right? So in some ways, when you have you know, the way that we, that we fund our public schools, certainly there are some public schools that have a lot more resources than others. And I think that you can look at how race might map onto that. But I don't think financial resources are the only thing that determines whether a school is good or not. I mean, certainly there are all kinds of schools that are good that don't have, you know, tons of affluence or tons of wealth. And I think that we can rethink what it means to be a good parent or, or go to a good school, if we start to acknowledge that there are so many other important aspects of raising children or, you know, of educating children, like having kids know how to interact with each other and teaching children about power and inequality and the fact that we live in a diverse democracy and that, you know, we should be thoughtful about the history of different groups and how that shapes the present and, and on and on. So, yeah, I absolutely think that part of the problem is these ultimately racist notions of what a good school is. 
and I, I agree that we we breathe it in. It's in the air, um, sort of the sort of structural nature of white supremacy. But yeah, I think it absolutely we need to rethink what it means to be a good parent, go to a good school, uh, live in a good neighborhood. I think about this a lot as well. What do you want to get from your kid's education? We get the question a lot at in grade schools of we, we get the excuse. I don't want my kid to be a guinea kid pig or I don't want to sacrifice my kid on the, you know, my altar of social justice. What does your research show about what a kid would get out of the sort of quote unquote sacrifice of not going to the what we would otherwise call best school Sure. So there's one child in my book named Charlotte, and these are all, of course, are all pseudonyms, but, you know, her parents not only opt into the public school, but they also resist the tracking and the processes of segregation that happen within the public school. So, um, you know, her parents are very concerned about the fact that, yes, we go to an integrated school, but then when you look at the AP classes, you know, it's all a bunch of white kids. And so they purposefully encouraged her to take a, take a, a range of different classes, to take some AP classes and then to take some other classes that were, you know, in different tracks. And and this was because they did not believe in the logic of tracking. And quite frankly, there's lots of um, research that supports that idea. You know, it was interesting because I went back and re-interviewed these kids when they were in high school. Um, and so I went and spoke to Charlotte, you know, again, a couple years after I initially met her. And there had been this horrific police shooting murder of a black teenager in this community, child in this community. And I was talking with her about it. And unlike some of her peers that were going, that had gone to these private schools, you know, she was able to talk in really concrete terms about what had happened. She was joining with her friends and peers of color, specifically her black peers, to engage in walking out of the school and and sort of articulating her own positions. She made this really powerful statement to me about the importance of standing in the back. They had a march and she talked about standing in the back of that um, protest march so that she wasn't trying to take over the march as a white person from, from her black peers. And I was just like really struck by how thoughtful she was being about her own whiteness, her own positionality. But then also, you know, she, she has learned so much by going to this school and having these experiences that I think are, are quite different than many kids in her position. So I really, you know, again, it's, it's not like there's ever a perfect situation. I mean, she also received all kinds of other privileges outside of school that sort of undermined to some extent some of the work that her parents are trying to do to challenge inequality. But I was really struck by that. And I, I believe that she has probably gone on to college. I haven't gone back and re-interviewed them yet, but I imagine that she, you know, is in a very different position in her college classrooms than certainly some of the students that I teach in college who don't, who don't know the basic history of, of racism in America. So I think that's an example of the benefit of not only going to an integrated school, but having, you know, a, a situation in which the, the, the segregation within the school is also being challenged. I love that your your book really points out this the kind of within school segregation and that's something we we talk about a lot but I want to pick up on what you were saying in this example about these 
kind of extracurricular things. So a lot of the integrated schools parents talk about, you know, enrolling their kids and integrating schools. And, and many of these schools are under-resourced, don't sort of have these good school things about them that some of the schools you're talking about do. But one of the refrains that people will say is our white and privileged kids will be okay because we can go to the museum on Saturday. We might not all be able to go to Mozambique, but we can go to the Children's Museum on Saturday. We can fill in the gaps with the extracurricular stuff. And that's sort of a way that that parents can make this choice to go to one of these under-resourced and global majority schools. And your book kind of blows that up in a sense. Like that stuff's not free either. These extracurricular things don't come without a cost to what you know we might be trying to do here in fighting against racism and structural oppression, et cetera. Sure. So I think it's perhaps helpful to use a sociological lens and think about how some of the parents do that you're maybe talking about. They're trying to navigate structural inequality at the individual level. And I think that's really difficult. And I think it's difficult to know, and this is what I, the parents are, are sort of expressing to me, it's difficult to know how to do that. It's difficult to know what kinds of choices to make because ultimately we're, again, living in a, a fundamentally unequal society. And so until that unequal society becomes more equal at a structural level, I don't think that there's any clear-cut answer. I don't think there's any even right way necessarily to, to move forward. I do think that, of course, when you bring your child to the museum on the weekend, you potentially are, are conferring a type of advantage to them because then when they have to you know, write an essay later on about, I don't know, whatever topic they learned about at the museum, they have something extra to draw upon. But again, I don't really know the best way for parents to navigate that. And I, as you said, I'm very clear that I am not trying to tell parents what to do um, in terms of parenting. But I do think that we can be collectively more creative about ways to challenges from inequality in our local communities. So is that museum available for everybody to go to? You know, that would be one question. Or, you know, are there ways to engage in volunteer work where you're not teaching children who are in the position of privilege that they are there to save the people who are in the, in the marginalized position? And again, I don't have a clear-cut answer as to how that should happen, but I think that people, especially white parents in positions of economic privilege, they ought to be thinking about that and sort of challenging this assumption that just by doing volunteer work, that's somehow going to make their kid be a good citizen, right? I think it's more complicated. Right. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that sort of kept coming up to me in reading the book was, I think you refer to the, the research around it a couple of times of like the, the types of multiracial environments that actually lead to greater empathy and decreased bias. They're like equal power relationships. I forget exactly how you sort of define them. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about like what those situations look like that are actually likely to decrease rather than increase perceived stereotypes and bias. Yeah, so there's a whole area of social psych psychological research. Um, it's actually it's a longstanding sort of debate in the field about this idea of contact theory. So if people come into contact with people that are different than them, will that reduce prejudice and bias? You know, some scholars argue that, that it can, but that there are these certain conditions that must be in place. And so one of the important conditions, and there's, there's a couple of them, um, certainly one of the most important ones is equal status 
you know, contact so that you can't have a situation in which the teacher tells one student that they are the leader of the group, right? And then, and they happen to be the white person, right? Or the white student. And then the kids that are black or brown are also in the group, but they're not the leader, right? That's not equal status contact. And so the, the contact has to be in a way where the power dynamic dynamics are reduced or, or, you know, as, as, as much as, as possible, there needs to be a shared common goal. There needs to be authority figures that support that goal. And there's all these different things in place. So certainly there were a few kids in the study. Um, there's one in particular who was at a playground and met some kids who were black at the playground. And he is so funny because he tells me that the reason that he became friends with them is because he likes to jump off things. And these guys like to jump off things too. And so they met each other because they were jumping off the the playground equipment or whatever. But I think that's like actually a really powerful moment, right? That because he was at that playground in an equal status situation where they're playing on the playground or whatever, that, that that's what led to them having a friendship that to my knowledge, continues to this day. And a friendship that meant that later when they were in middle school and those teachers were disproportionately, you know, targeting the black students for breaking rules that all the students were breaking. Like there was this one rule about having your, you know, the hood on your sweatshirt up over your head. And a lot of the kids told me in this particular school that the teachers would, would always call out the black kids when they had their hoods up, but they would let the white kids have their hoods up all the time. So when this happens to his friend, he's very upset and um, outspoken about it and, and talks to his parents about it. Whereas other kids are just like, yeah, I guess that's bad, but whatever. So, you know, I think that these meaningful relationships and friendships, um, you know, given that they're forming under these conditions of equal status and, and, and so forth, I think that they could be um, very powerful. You know, we, we talk a lot about the playground being sort of the space where a lot of this work should be done and the role of, especially of white families, you know, moving into global majority schools that obviously there's a desire there for kids to develop those sorts of relationships. And if the school is doing a good job of creating the environment for that, then that's one of the benefits that you know, would come from a school like that. But there's also often a challenge for parents in building similar types of relationships. And so one of the things we often see with schools is an influx of white families who want to take the school over or change the school or make the school quote unquote better. Um, and it, it would seem like that a, a, a good place to start to avoid that would be in building more meaningful relationships with families that are at the school that have been at the school for a while. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So because I was doing ethnography, I was able to go, I, you know, I went to, to lots of private spaces in terms of people's homes and country clubs and so forth. But I also went to some like big public meetings and other things that happened in the community. And I observed this dynamic of, you know, these well-intentioned white people, you know, coming into a space and trying to dominate, trying to be in charge. I think that that's, that that's a challenge. And certainly there's some great research. Um, Lynn Posey Maddox is a colleague of mine. Um, and she has a great, some great research on, on PTAs about the dynamic that you're describing exactly of, you know, white parents saying, okay, well, I'm going to opt into this school, but now I need to like, you know, take over the PTA. And so, yeah, I think building relationships, I think, honestly, I mean, it's, I, I feel like it's, 
also kind of a basic concept of like white people like listening and sitting down and letting you know other people have positions of leadership and or not letting them have but just you know being in a situation in which you know you're not constantly pushing to be the loudest voice in the room also pushing to not try to be like the best white person in the room there's also some dynamics of that in this sort of performative anti-racism that doesn't get anyone anywhere. So, you know, I think that that a lot of these dynamics, again, I think they're very complicated and very nuanced. Um, and I don't think that there's one sort of like solution for all these scenarios. But I just think in general, if white folks are truly committed to, you know, challenging racism, that means that they need to be quiet sometimes and they need to listen and they need to um, stop putting themselves in the position of power. I love Lynn Posey Maddox's book. We've we've used that a lot in the past and we recommend that to people all the time. It's really, really important. This idea of of how white parents are showing up is very heavy for us. It's kind of what we're trying to, you know, work on. And, you know, the equal relationships and equal status is very, very important and also incredibly tricky, right? And it's tricky because some people are showing up with a lot more power and the white and privileged families are showing up with more power and they might have the number of the superintendent on their speed dial or, you know, or their school board member is a neighbor, you know, or, or they know how to write big grants or there's, you know, access to all of these things that white and, and privileged parents have. And so when you're showing up with these good intentions, and you have access to power. So often, you know, one of the things that we hear is that people want to choose a global majority school so that they can, quote, use their privilege to support the school. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that that feels very meaningful, right? Because it's acknowledging that there's this power dynamic or differences in access and power and that those aren't necessarily deserved or earned, but that they exist nonetheless. But this, the phrase using my privilege has been really sitting heavy on me lately. And I know I've probably said it as well, but I, I guess my problem with this idea is that it's, it, it always starts with I. I want to use my privilege. And I don't know if a reframing of this as like, I, I don't know, you use my privilege to support this school sort of makes maybe a little bit more sense. I mean, I think the first thing that comes to mind based on what you just said is, you know, this idea that we can use this privilege. Like we can can use the resources that, you know, I bring but we can also use the resources that you bring, right? Everyone is bringing resources and different types of capital, whether that be knowledge of how, you know, some aspect of the community works or whether that be the superintendent's phone number, right? We all bring something to the table. And I think it's a matter of not trying to set up hierarchies about what types of assets that we brought or capital that we bring is more important, right? I think recognizing that everyone has something to offer and truly trying to set up, and I'm not saying this is easy to do, but, you know, in a practical sense, but trying to, trying to work towards finding ways to respect and appreciate and value everyone's contributions and then collectively trying to come to the best decisions about how we can use you know, these various forms of capital to advance the goal that would benefit the most children at the school rather than 
one segment of the children at the school. Um, because I do think that if you have the, num- the number of the superintendent and there's a problem at the school and collectively people are like, yeah, we need to do something about this, you know, then, then that is a, that's a form of, that's a resource, right. That can be used. It's just who gets to decide when that gets used and how it gets used and for whom, right. So there's, those are all kinds of questions of power that are, that are part of that. I, lo- I love that. I think one of the moms on the PTA at my daughter's school has, has mentioned this a, a few times, but it, it just seems like, in the same way we need to redefine our version of what a good school is, we probably need to redefine what we think of as capital, as, you know, social or political capital that people bring to a school. And we, we have a very white centric view of what capital means. But if you actually have a community at a school that is working to support the school, there are all sorts of things that each individual could be bringing to the table that you have to find a way to, make people feel comfortable showing up in that space and sharing those things and bringing those things to the table. You have to value those things in order for them to be willing to share those things. And then you have to figure out, I think, like you said, how, how does the collective group go about leveraging all of those things to improve the school for everybody? Yeah. And and I think my problem with the use your privilege piece or use my privilege piece is, is that it is erasing, you know, these other resources that families are bringing you know, or, or sort of shadowing those things. The other thing is, um, I'm not sure if you guys have ever um, spoken to Amanda Lewis or John Diamond. You know, I think in their book, Despite the Best Intentions, I think that you can really see how this is playing out. I mean, I think it's exactly what we're talking about, like the, the, the study that they did on a, on a school that um, has some, some of these patterns of, you know, white parents kind of dominating. And the problem is, too, that people might not even be aware of the, the kinds of dynamics that are actually going on in the school if they're only focused on using my privilege, right? So I'm thinking about the structural problems at the school, like the way that, that, that disciplinary actions are distributed or the ways that, you know, teachers are giving certain kids more makeup tests or extra credit or, you know, the parents are calling the school and harassing the teachers to give their kids, you know, bonus points. All of these dynamics that are happening, um, which is kind of what some of the things that are in that are in Despite the Best Intentions, you know, I think that, that in order to challenge these patterns within the schools, parents need to know what's going on. And you can't know what's going on if you're not valuing everyone's voice and everyone's contributions. So I think even trying to challenge the structural problems requires this sort of, you know, recognition of each other's uh, forms of capital. Yeah. You know, it, it's not just that some parents are calling, but because the types of parents who usually call are the white parents, the white kids even if their parents aren't calling, are benefiting from that, those expectations. Teachers think, well, this is the kind of kid whose parent would call, so I may as well just give them the good grade now or not send the office for this or whatever. Or automatically enroll their kid in the honors class. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, right. It's another, it's another structural inequity that, that people are trying to deal with on an individual level. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the idea of meritocracy, because I think about it all the time. And and it's one of those sort of running themes through your book. And I guess to take liberties with summarizing a book to its author, (laughs) it seems like the kids in the very white segregated 
you know, part of this community tend to have a much more cemented belief in a meritocracy that we get what we earn. And I know that there's a relationship too with colorblindness, but this meritocracy part is, I think, really critical and something we don't talk about enough. Sure. So the idea of meritocracy or, you know, oftentimes people think of it as like the American dream is, you know, you work hard and you succeed. And that's, you know, people are rich because they worked hard. People are poor because they're lazy. And obviously then race gets mapped onto that as well. And so that's sort of this logic or what sociologists would call an ideology, sort of like taken for granted, common sense understanding of how the world works that is used often to justify forms of inequality. So rather than acknowledging the racial wealth gap or the ways in which discrimination works or the ways that certain groups are, you know, experiencing different forms of violence um, from the, from the state, for example, you know, it's not about any of that. It's about the fact that people don't work hard. And so what I found in the community of families and their, their children in particular who lived, you know, as prominently white they had very little understanding of these structural dynamics, these structural components of ultimately white supremacy. And so they also lacked, in my opinion, at least based on what I you know, observed, a solid understanding of the history of racism in America. And so if you don't understand as a young person, the historical barriers, for example, that groups of racially marginalized communities have faced then meritocracy makes a lot of sense to you, right? I mean, you're like, okay, well, you know, if everyone's equal and some people are rich and some people are poor, it must be because of these individual level, you know, successes or failures that are related to hard work. And so part of my project is really trying to understand why the kids think the way that they think about race. And I think for these children, they have never been taught otherwise. They've never had any opportunity to really, one of the moms there is telling me she's using The Help, the movie The Help, teach her kid about racism. And, you know, that movie has been widely criticized by historians as being not only inaccurate, but, you know, centering this white woman and all that. So, and the message of that film as a white savior film is, look, racism's over. You know, it used to be really bad, but now it's fine. And that was exactly what this what this um, child articulated to me. Um, and it was what her mother wanted her to think too. Um, so certainly some of the kids challenged their parents on this. And I don't want to paint a picture like kids are just, you know, mimicking their parents. But for, for kids like that, meritocracy explains inequality, right? It explains why we have you know, the haves and the have-nots. And it's not about structural reasons. It's about individual failure, ultimately. That's great. So I, I think about a handful of times through the course of the book where it seemed like somebody was trying to sort of do the right thing, have a viewpoint that acknowledges structural racism more and trying to share that with their kid, but then also sort of follows it up with something that undermines that in some way. I think uh, I think William, dad, who's trying to teach his kid the right message while reinforcing the wrong message. And, and I think a lot about sort of the many decades, maybe centuries of work that it's taken to get us to the level of racial animosity that we have. It's not something that we could ever hope to fix immediately. But one of the things that I struggle with that I know Courtney struggles with is like, like, is it better for that guy to, or the, the dad who um, takes the STEM class to the inner city school? Like, is it better to do that than not do that at all? Do we get any credit for progress? Or does that sort of pe- let people off the hook for the other ways that they are supporting structural racism 
and, and doesn't encourage them to keep fighting? Yeah, I mean, that's a really big question. Um, you know, in the, in the examples like the dad who, you know, witnesses some racism on the soccer field with another team and stands up to that in front of the kids and is modeling what it's like, to, what it means to do that, especially as a white father, you know, a, ma- a man who's also affluent, you know, kind of embodies all these different forms of intersecting privileges. You know, I think that's really important. I was really struck, though, by his immediate then turn to talking about, well, if the black, you know, why aren't the black dads here or something like that? So I guess this goes back to my statement earlier about, you know, I don't think that there's really ever, like, kind of, kind of as you just said, like, this is people are trying to navigate inequality. And I'm not trying to let anybody off the hook, but I do think that, you know, the parents are kind of inconsistent at times. You know, they'll do some things that seem, really great. And then at other times they'll do things that are undermining those efforts. And so, yeah, I, I, I tried to pull out those inconsistencies because I think it's important to show that there's no such thing as this, like, you know, best white person kind of in the room. I'm, you know, at all times, I'm always doing everything right. Because I think that that is foolish way to think about things. You know, we live in a society structured by race. And so it's a constant negotiation of, you know, how to behave and how to act at the individual level that will try to challenge these structural inequalities. So again, I don't know that I have a really, you know, good answer, but I do think that I certainly wouldn't discourage parents from trying. I just think that the work doesn't end when you decide to send your kid to an integrated school or when you decide to coach an integrated soccer team, like the work continues and it's constant. And that's just the reality um, from my perspective, at least. Right. So an acknowledgement that you're probably not doing it right. I I think about the like, you know, white fragility that too much acknowledging that you're not doing it right, right. And white people tend to feel uncomfortable and feel a right to not feel uncomfortable. And so then sort of check out from it. I don't know. to, To me, I think about the parents that I see who are most engaged in this work, either grew up in diverse environments and sort of had some of this experience in their lives or had a very opposite experience and want to sort of push back against that. I'm going to jump in here. The parents at integrated schools either are kind of know how to be uncomfortable because that was their background, right? Or they don't value comfort above all else. Yeah. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. To me, it seems like we have to acknowledge the ways that we are falling short, but also acknowledge that trying is better than not trying because our kids are are going to do it a lot better than we do and their kids are going to do it better than they do. And this is not a, this is a generational problem, not a problem that we're going to fix, you know, with a couple of self-help books by next week. And you, you talk about this, Maggie, at the end of your book, kind of the worry that parents are just going to throw up their hands and say, well, if I can't do this right, why bother? Look, the reality is that parents who are raising black and brown children don't have the luxury of giving up. They don't have the luxury of saying, you know what, this is too much. I can't deal with this. This is uncomfortable. And so, you know, I think that white parents cannot give up because it's difficult. And I talk in the book about sort of, of white people sort of shifting their own ways of thinking and being willing to have these honest, um, you know, confrontations with race, being willing to make mistakes and admit that you're not always right. Um, You know, and, and sort of understanding that, 
the, again, I was read it, the potential collective benefits of challenging forms of racism in private white spaces ultimately outweigh any perceived personal or emotional costs. And so, you know, kind of getting at this thing, like you know, a lot of the parents in my book would witness moments of explicit racism in their home, even with their, you know, grand, grandfather at Thanksgiving was one example, but they don't do anything about it in the privacy of their own home. And they think, oh, well, this is just grandpa being grandpa. I'm not, I'm just going to leave it alone. This isn't like, in public, you know, and so forth. And I don't want to cause a scene. I don't want it to be mad. And I'm sort of saying like, look, this is an example of, of the importance of changing how white people are talking to each other about race and being able to understand that there's a larger goal here. And, and I just ultimately think that, you know, I see this a lot when I teach, I teach classes on race and racism. Um, and I've taught at a number of different universities in different parts of the country, but, you know, I really try to work with the students, you know, to sort of be willing to be challenged on something and not completely, it's a white fragility is a great concept, right? Like not completely break down when they say something and another student is like, look, that's offensive to me. And here's why, you know, like that's an important moment. I think not that it's the job of people of color to teach white people how to not be racist, but you know, if white people can't even think about, you know, have even the smallest amount of racial stress, I think is how um, Robin and D'Angelo puts it, you know, like if they can't even experience the smallest amount of stress without freaking out, it's like, well, then where's that going to lead us? Well, I don't know. I think people just need to think about larger dynamics. And I, and I understand that in the moment people might feel upset and emotional, but you know, there's larger goals, I think. You know, you went back to these kids four years later. Can you just give us some examples? I, you, talk, you talked earlier about the student who was protesting and standing at the back of the protest who had really kind of thought so much more deeply having been in an integrated space. But was there a trend to these kids' experiences and how they interacted with race? Yeah, so and I don't have a huge samples, right? So I can't make generalizations, but for these kids, I think that their ideas about race became more cemented as they transitioned from middle childhood to adolescence or early adolescence to later adolescence, depending on how you want to you know, look at it. And I think that their ideas also became more polarized from one another. It's very difficult for me to know if that's because of a developmental aspect or if it was because of the time in which they were growing up. And I think it's probably a combination, but maybe even more the latter. Um, certainly the past few years in America, there's been sort of an increased public dialogue about race and debate about race. Um, and certainly things like, you know, more attention being put onto things that have always existed, like police violence, for example, as well as the fact that we had, you know, the first black president, you know, there are lots of things that, that occurred during these kids' childhoods. But, you know, I think like even talking about Black Lives Matter with these kids, it was interesting how like remarkably different they, these kids felt about this. And there was nobody that was really in the middle. It was like some kids were very squarely like, yeah, Black Lives Matter. And this is why we need to, you know, join with our friends and protest. And there were other kids that were saying, you know, really um, shocking things like, well, the reason the black kids get shot or, you know, is because they did something bad, you know, they messed up. And so it was just really remarkable to see that these are kids that are living largely in the same metropolitan area. But as I said, in, in earlier on, you know, their parents have set up their lives in ways that are so different that they have almost different childhoods in a way, despite the fact that they're white, affluent, living in the same place, you know, doing the same kinds of things like playing soccer and, you know, all the, all the things. Yeah. 
I wonder if, because we are, you know, this is integrated schools and one of the goals is getting people to think more about the choices they make around schools. I just wonder in sort of going back and visiting these families later, looking at the effects that the, the schools had, I guess you touched on this a little bit, but if you had any sort of, I know you try not to tell parents what to do, but advice around if people do have a choice and they, ha- they can use that privilege to choose what sort of school they send their kids to, what's the impact of choosing an integrated school versus a privileged segregated school? Yeah. So the way that my book can sort of extend the great work that you guys are doing in integrated schools is that my book is focusing on how white kids are learning about inequality and racism and privilege. And so while I I think there are lots of reasons that parents should support integrated schools um, and and should support detracking measures within schools that, that claim to be integrated. I think that there's also this component of the ways that you know, to put it in scholarly terms, but the ways that ideologies get reproduced or to put it in in more basic terms, how racism gets reproduced. And so I think we spend a lot of time thinking about the importance of desegregation along a number of different lines. And I think that where my book kind of fits in is, look, this is also, this issue is also shaping the way that the newest generation of white people is thinking about race in America. And you know, if it's it's not just about the unequal distribution of resources or the the ways that certain schools are are perceived, or you know, it's it's beyond that. It's also about literally what kind of ideas do you want your children to form about the world? And I don't I don't believe after spending two years with these families in a very you know intimate and intense kind of way that just talking about the importance of fairness and equal opportunity is enough. I think that parents need to model that and they need to provide opportunities for their children to learn something different than the racial status quo. I mean, you don't have to work to teach children to learn the racial status quo, right? That's that's the dominant way of thinking. I think if you want to be brave and challenge that, then it means, you know, doing things like embracing integrated schools. She is so great, Corny. What did you think about that? You know, uh, yeah, she's so great. I spent so much time after recording that interview thinking about what she was saying about valuing the resources that all people have to offer. I mean, yes, absolutely, right? Absolutely. And it, it just feels so obvious, right? But when we're so focused on, you know, quote, leveraging our privilege, it's just incredibly easy to sideline that and and it's a framing that makes all the difference and so I really I, I was really grateful to hear her talking about that yeah yeah she's great I was the thing that sort of kept coming back to me was this idea of like um, individuals trying to navigate structural inequities yeah you know that your individual choices can really only do so much against the systemic issues we're facing but if you don't do those things it it has like a real meaningful impact on your kids and how they come to understand the world yeah, right. But then also, while we can't do all the things to, you know, mitigate mitigate these big structural pieces, our individual choices and actions are kind of everything. And in yeah. you know, there's all these ways that we can't escape the structural also. So it's messy and it's there's no like perfect good way to do that, right? To do any of this that like right. deals with all of these things all at once. And I think that's really hard for us white people who kind of want like the, you know, step-by-step good person manual, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. But you know, I do, I do take hope from the fact that 
that the choices that we do make really make a difference for our kids. And, you know, we're not going to solve racism next week. Um, but but there are things that we can actually do to set up our kids to do better than we did. And, you know, hopefully their kids do better than them. And, and then maybe we can sort of dig out of this hole. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. You know, we either start or we don't start. Right. And so. Yeah. Yeah. So I think now we need to make those choices. Right. And yeah. talk about them. Right. Like talking about them in our social circle also, because we have to change the narrative. Like that's just kind of the beginning. Definitely. Huge thanks to Dr. Hageman for sharing her work, um, for being all around awesome. And as always, thanks to Kevin Casey for our music. Yes, please get in touch and let us know what you thought at Integrated Schools on Twitter, Integrated Schools on Facebook, or email us at hello at integratedschools.org. See you next time. Bye. Bye.